As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me a very dear friend. His name is Day Schildkret. He is the author of two books, Morning Altars, and most recently, Hello, Goodbye. Mm-hmm. 75 Rituals for Times of Loss, Celebration, and Change. Day, welcome, first of all, to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Your books have served a huge role in our lives here at our house. Um, you're an internationally known author. Morning Altars is a seven-step practice to nourish your spirit through nature, art, and ritual. And it's inspired tens of thousands of people of all ages to find meaning, healing, and wholeness through art, through nature, through rituals, through teachings. And it's such a joy to see this book, Hello, Goodbye, because it has helped even here where I consider myself a fairly serious person who gives a lot of credence to transitions in certain moments. Even with me, this book has helped to bring a little more ritual to my world. And I, I really thank you for that. So let's talk a little bit about Hello, Goodbye and how this book came to be. And then I have some readings that I would like to share with you so that our listener can learn a little bit more before they go out and get this beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, sure. I mean, like mo- how most things come to be, it's, you know, beginnings oftentimes are often preceded by endings. So, you know, this book was basically like my first book too. I mean, they all started with something ending. So my first book began with my father passing away. And uh, essentially I found that practice and that book through his dying. And this book was the ending of kind of normal life. And it started with the pandemic, pretty much started writing it the month the pandemic started. So March, 2020, I guess. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like most people at that time, my life, you know, changed dramatically. My family life changed dramatically. My mother's health changed dramatically. And I realized that we are adrift culturally. You know, we need more grounding forces. We, as things change, as my life changed, I needed something that could tether me, that could keep me just in the everyday sanity. Because, you know, change is just so destabilizing. So, you know, at the time, it was, it's a crazy story, by the way. It's an absolutely crazy story. But I was, I was planning on writing the book, just took for a couple of months on Salt Spring Island in Canada. And the pandemic started. My, all of my employment went away within a week. My housing went away. I was airbnb the woman who was renting me my house wanted it back. And I had to walk that invisible bridge. You know what I mean? 
Like I had to basically walk forward without much security and certainty. And uh, I'll tell you what, what stabilized me at the time was such a simple ritual of going to visit the sea every morning. I just, before anything, I would put on my rubber boots. You know me, I like to work with nature. So I'd grab a basket in case I was inspired by something. And I literally would walk to the sea, which was not that very far from the house I was living in. And I would just sit and listen to her, sit and listen to the birds, sit and listen to the sea lions and the seals. And I would find my way back to like, all oh, right, life is okay. <laughs> life is still happening, you know? Um, and I would make a little altar at the edge of the sea, which she would immediately come and eat. And um, I'd find my way back and answer the emails and the phone calls and, you know, emergency. I mean, it was the pandemic, it was the early stages of the pandemic. So um, that ritual was not so much a beauty making experience. It was a necessity. It was like, I've got to do this every day to keep, keep sane and to remember what's important, to remember what's important. And that's really the essence of ritual is it helps us to remember because being human and being human right now, it's so easy to forget. Oh, I thought I would <laughs> start in light. <laughs> no, it's for real. Like I, I just heard a story of a gal, mother of a three and a five-year-old who was diagnosed with mental illness and jumped off a bridge yesterday. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It is real. It is real. Ooh, I thought I would read the second, third paragraph from the foreword that you asked me to write for this book. All right, you wrote the foreword. I know. <laughs> I'm so happy about it. I am too. But I thought I might read it for our listener who might get a little bit of grounding into the book from here. Where am I? Who am I? Who are you? What do I do now? What was isn't any longer. Someone left, someone arrived, something broke, something repaired, life changed. Now, what can you do? To mark this moment and find yourself again, to, re, to recognize that this is no longer that. Yeah. I'll just read just a couple more sentences. You and I are asking these questions now more than ever. What can we do to mark the often unspoken moments our society urges us to ignore? Are we to simply pass them by, glossing over and moving on from the miscarriage, the breakup, the coming out, the move, the loss of a loved one, the healing of an illness? What about when we find a new love, a nourishing friendship, a job, a surge of creativity? Instead of muscling our way through difficulty or numbing ourselves when things feel fantastic, what might help us pay attention and grant appropriate significance to these thresholds? How can we note these moments, learn from what's arduous, and honor holiness? And I think that really does encapsulate this beautiful book, Hello, Goodbye. Um, what, what I was inspired to move toward is the, the letting go chapter, Rituals for Letting Go. Well, I'll tell you, today is, you're, ask, you're saying that on a very, I mean, it's kind of wild that we're speaking today. Mm. Um, because five, five years ago today, um, my beloved dog died. Oh. 
And uh, so it's her five year, five year anniversary right now. And I'm looking on my altar right to my left. And there is her leash on the altar. And I actually put this little ritual in the book. There's a chapter called Loss of a Pet. And um, the day she, you know, she died and we had her leash just sitting by the front door. You know, this, I don't know if you have an animal, but the, the everydayness of a leash with a dog is like a real thing. I mean, you know, morning walks, evening walks, literally right now a dog just walked past my window with, yeah. So there's, you know, an everydayness to this object, very routine. The day after she died, it just sat there. And this thing that looks so, that was so important to literally tethering us to each other on our walks became totally purposeless. So I have a tradition. Um, I come from Jewish culture and we have a tradition when someone dies, we, we tear clothing. And sometimes we just put like a torn ribbon on our heart to symbolize, you know, how our hearts are broken when someone dies. And so a few days after I thought about this ritual where part of saying goodbye to her, her, she was a miniature schnauzer named Rudy, is I cut the leash and I wore the cut part of the leash over my heart for a year Hmm. just to remember her because God, we were best friends fucking best friends. I mean, really. And, um, and her loss was really like a, you know, it's, it's, it's family, you know, it's like that kind of loss. And, um, and I got to remember her whenever I put on my coat, she was there and people, it also served as a conversation starter. You know, people would say like, what's on your heart. And I get to talk about her. And so this little ritual that was so simple, I mean, I just cut this thing is now still, it's living on my altar. It's really one way I get to remember my love for her and how much I miss her. And I thought that, you know, to me, it's like so apropos that of course we're talking today, five years to the day when I put her down. It's so not crazy. (laughs) (laughs) The connection that we have. It is and it isn't, right? It is and it isn't. The connection that we have is so real. (laughs) Such a, it's, it, it, you know what you feel like to me, you feel like, um, like a friend from grade school. Mm, thank you. Yeah. That's a high compliment. That's what it, it has always felt like that from the minute Slumber we met. party. Slumber yeah, party. High. Totally. Totally. <laughs> so this chapter though, on letting go is really significant. I think for right now, it has everything from weaning a baby to leaving a job, to going on sabbatical, to retiring. Yeah. yeah. And there's something for everybody in this book, but I loved the quote that you chose from Esther Perel Mm. on leaving a job. Oh yeah. Work is an identity project. I just find this so significant. Work is an identity project. It's a place where we go to experience meaning, community, belonging, purpose, money, and survival. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yep, work. <laughs> I think I have to get her on the podcast. That's a really, really good start for a conversation. But, you know, what do you do? That's the first thing we ask people. So exactly. And, and so think about when someone leaves their job, when you actually say goodbye, how much, how many stakes are filled with that experience? Like, it's not a simple thing. It's not a simple thing to 
retire. It's not a simple thing to leave your job. It's not a simple thing to take a break. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty as the next person with this. I, I mean, I went on a vacation a couple of weeks ago for the first time in like eight years mm. because there's so much wrapped up identity wise, relational, money, time, commitment, passion, all of these things are wrapped up in what we do. And the culture that we live in projects so much value in our sense of productivity. So when we're not productive, we, a lot of us question our value. So it's very, very hard to respect, to honor these goodbyes. You know, I, I interviewed almost 300 people for this book. I'm thinking of a woman, Susan. I interviewed her. She retired. She was out of her job for like 30 something years. Crazy. I mean, that's unheard of these days. And for two years after she retired, she was waking up every single day with an anxiety attack because she thought she was late for work or she didn't hand in a project or her boss was going to be, you know, upset with her. I still have that. You do? <laughs> I wake up most mornings feeling like I must be in trouble for something. Yeah. Yeah. And there was some part of her psyche that wasn't shifting. That wasn't getting the message like, hey, you're retired right now, right? Because when, when something changes that dramatically, when someone's born, when someone dies, when you retire, when you move, when you miscarry, whatever the change is, sometimes it's so big that it's not enough to just walk through that change. You have to market. You have to market so that your psyche can get it. You have to distinguish that time is no longer this time, right? So she's retired. This is a totally different time than what you were doing two years ago. And it's ritual. And she told me she finally did some ritual and, she, and it stopped. She stopped waking up anxious because some part of her understood the distinction, the, the threshold distinction. Yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful. There's a, a really nice ritual for the sabbatical moment too. If if you are taking a sabbatical, even for leaving a job or dissolving a business, which I think is relevant for right now. So I'm just going to quickly mention we're on page 145. Write the eulogy, state when the business was born, what it accomplished, how it grew, who it helped, and when it died. Mm-hmm publish the eulogy, like to either to past clients or maybe on social media, who knows, and then burn it and, yeah. and handwrite it and burn it. I'll tell you that came from a, a story with one of my best friends. She was an organ, a professional organizer for, I don't know, 10 years. And she moved on to another job. She now works in, in the wellness industry. And, um, she like Googled her old, her old, uh, business name and the and she went to her old website and across it it said something like expired <gasps> and she was like oh fuck that's a this is a death and i didn't put it down you know it just kind of was like a ghost in online and she she came to me and she said what do i do like i don't do this anymore i don't have these clients this is not an important website but i can't just put this i can't just el- like delete it this is this was years of hard work, years and years of, of laboring with clients. Like I need to do something to mark that this is over, that this chapter is over. So that's where that ritual came from is the writing the eulogy. 
I also love the work that you have with teens. Uh, yeah, I love teenagers so much. Oh my God, it's my favorite. I thought I was going to hate it. I was freaking out. Oh my God, I'm going to have a teenager. And now he's a teenager and he's my favorite person. They're the best. They're, they're truth tellers. They're risk takers. They wear their hearts on their sleeve. They're willing. If you speak honestly to them, they answer you honestly. Yeah, I taught teenagers around a fire for 12 years every Tuesday night. Wait, tell me more. Oh, I had a class called the fire circle. I would gather 25 teenagers around a fire every Tuesday night for 12 years. What? At, mm-hmm, sit at the edge of a forest and we would just ask really intense questions together. And then they would, they would just both witness each other. They'd witness me. They'd sit around the fire. They'd be in the presence of mystery. They'd ask, they'd, yeah, it was a life-changing experience. I mean, we'd ask questions like, why am I angry all the time? Or why are so many of my friends on pharmaceuticals? Or what does it mean to fall in love with someone? Like questions that they're asking, you know, but they have no place to ask those questions. So I brought them to the thing that our ancestors brought our teenagers to for thousands of years, fire. And, uh, and you know what's crazy? Of course, crazy, not crazy is I just went out for dinner two nights ago with a student who I taught when he was 13, 14, and now he's 28. And we went out for dinner two nights ago. I haven't seen him in years. And he told me how, how that fire circle is still rippling out in his world. I mean, so amazing when we show up to our, our youth like that, you know? And there's a chapter in the book on puberty and Honestly, it's like one of my favorite chapters because I, I just, I'm devoted to teenagers. It's the one I marked. It's page 240 for a listener. And it starts with this Khalil Gibran quote, which I already have tears in my eyes thinking about reading it. <laughs> your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, (laughs) they belong not to you. So, ah. That's the ultimate heartbreak for a mother, by the way. It is and it isn't. Yeah. I want to say to the parent of a teen who might be listening, or the mentor of a teen who might be listening, and we're going to talk about the edge ritual in a moment, because I'm transfixed by it. Um, I... Every day, I'm finding myself having to pivot away in these minuscule, microscopic measurements away from my child. Mm -hmm. And it has done nothing but good for him, for his feeling of independence, for his sense of of capacity, capability, and for his willingness to just tell me the truth about things. Yeah, I get the truth and I accept him fully and I barely stop him from doing things because it feels to me like if, if I would have had that, I, I think things would have been quite a bit different for me. Same. Yeah. Oh my God. Same. Yeah. (laughs) So I really, I give him a lot of space and latitude and leeway. By the way, right word pivot. That's the perfect word because that's what. That's exactly what you're doing. 
it's a gentle, it's, and if you, like, I'm picturing myself standing facing 12 o'clock on the clock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm moving to 11.59 and a half. Yeah. And then to 11.59. And this happens like on the daily. Mm-hmm. He feels it. And every now and again, he'll, and he's now six one. by the way. Mm. When you saw, I think you saw him when, when I saw you. And much, like, much smaller. Yeah. yeah. Three feet mm-hmm. tall, four feet tall. Oh, yeah. That just happened to my best friend. Her son's foot went from like an eight to like a 14. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's a beast. Beast. But every now and again, and I think it's a result of me letting him be who he is and not giving him a hard time pretty much ever, except for every now and again, I have to have him just be like, yo, pick up your room, please. Yeah. It Mm -hmm. it matters. He'll come and he'll smash his face into my eye socket the way that he used to for like one, two, three, four seconds. Oh my God, it is the best. And I, I pretend like it's no big fucking deal. Like, oh, no big deal, whatever. But to me, it's like that bit that, what's her name? The comedian did about having a teenager. And like, it almost feels like you're, you know, you're meeting somebody you really like for the first time. And they like, their finger brushes against you. And you're just like, oh, they like me, you know? Yep. Oh God, it just brings a tear to my eye. And any case. The Edge Rituals on page 247. We'll set it up because I think, I just want to say there's three rituals in that chapter. And the the Edge Ritual is really speaking to a teenager's need to, to experience the edge of things. Not with their parents, because your job as a parent is really to protect them and keep them safe. But teenagers need to feel the edge of life. And they need to do it in a way that's safe, but feels a little risky to them. And they need to do it in the presence of a mentor or someone who's they trust who's not a not parent. So that's the edge ritual. You can we'll go into that in just a bit, but there's two other rituals that are tending to two other needs around puberty. The second one is about um, charging the teenager to to make it a meal for their friends and family. And that's the big task ritual. It's, it's giving them a big task to accomplish so that they can feel independent and that they can feel like they can serve the people that have been serving them. And then lastly, and not least, because it's really probably going to touch your heart, is the third one is for parents to basically create together a, a scrapbook um, where on one side of the page, you are putting photos of you at different stages of your childhood into teenage years. And on the other side, it's your son as a baby growing up into his teenage years. And you get to tell your story and also see the places where you're projecting and you have, you know, you have unmet or un, untended um, places of your childhood in teenage years that, and I'm not saying you, I'm just saying in general, we do this all of One. the time. We, yeah, we put our kind of our needs and our, and our challenges onto our children. And so sometimes, you know, like it's hard to distinguish ourselves from them. And so that ritual is really about coming to um, terms with their aging, your aging, and see the distinction between you two. Right. And the overlap too. And the overlap and the beauty. I mean, you know, the similarities. Yeah. The meal, I love, that one is on page 258 for our listener. 
I want to back up into the edge ritual for a moment because I think the meal assignment is going to have to come from his mentor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the edge ritual is interesting because it gives for this is for our listener. It gives this kid an official sort of handoff to a mentor who's not a parent. What's weird, as I read this the first time several months ago when I first got the book, was I realized what value my boyfriend James brings to Jonah's life. And he is the de facto mentor because James gets information he hasn't even shared with me. He gets information that I don't even know. Uh And definitely Jonah's father doesn't know. As close as we all are. I mean, James and Jonah's father are like brothers that they never got in this lifetime. But James has really sort of He's stepped a different in. Function. Different function. Totally. And not attached. Not attached. So this is a really cool one for the parents of a parent of a teen who might be listening. You know, this is no small thing. And it's well worth your time to read this particular bit, Edge Ritual. Uh, the puberty chapter starts on page 240. Not a, not my favorite word. And the edge ritual is on, as I said, page 247. Mm-hmm. I would love, lastly, to... I've had a few friends lose pets recently, and I've had many friends lose parents mm-hmm. recently. And I know we're of that particular like sort of generation now where this is what is happening. And I wonder... And I, I think I remember seeing this in the book, but I wonder if you have something for for friends of ours, our listener who might be taking care of an aging or ailing parent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, that's me, by the way. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Taking care of a, an ailing parent. Um, I mean, as you know, and I'll just say without going too much into it, because it's a whole story. Um you know, the whole introduction of the book starts off. My mother has mid-stage dementia and the whole book starts off with the question, what do you do the first time your mom forgets your name? Because that happened to me last year. And, um, and a beautiful ritual came from that. A really, because I couldn't just carry on with my day. I just couldn't, you know, I had emails and phone calls and meetings and And yet this big thing happened to me and I needed to slow down. You know, I needed to stop. I needed to mark that moment. And my own tradition had nothing to say. None of, you know, all of the practices that I do, nothing helped at that time. And so all I could do is really light a candle. And I realized in that moment that I wanted more people in the room with me to not feel alone when I was going through that experience. And so I lit more candles and I said more names. I said my grandparents' names, I lit more candles. I said my aunt's name, I lit more candles. I said my brother and sister-in-law's name. And at the end, my room was filled with like 50 candles. And this moment that felt so burdensome and so lonely it was actually beautiful. Like my whole room was a glow and it wasn't like the pain wasn't there. It just was there with beauty, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Crying three times during a podcast. Check. <laughs> <sighs> you know, and so I'll say like, it's those moments. It's the moments when, you know, something big happens like that. And it's also the moments when 
when we think nothing big's happening. Like I woke up this morning, you know, and most of us are just on our phones and on Instagram and just, you know, we kickstart our day. But I think the way through whatever we're going through is to actually stop and say, this is happening. I made it here. You know, like this actually happened. And to see if you can meet that moment with a little bit more meaning, a little bit more beauty, a little bit more intention, you know, and to pivot. This is an old, like this is a 200-year-old saying, uh, Arnold Van Genep, he's an anthropologist. He called it, speaking of pivot, he called it pivoting towards the sacred. And you just turn towards that moment and just make it into something more. Just a little bit, you know? At, when I was writing this book, by the way, every night before I went to bed, I took my coffee filter for the next morning and uh, with a pencil, I wrote a reminder, a gift for my morning self oh. on the coffee filter. Something that I learned from that day that I needed to remember and I gave it as a gift to my morning self. And that was like taking a coffee, just making coffee, simple, easy, routine every day and making it into a little bit more of a, a chance to remember. What do I need to remember? Oh, right, right. You know, and, and that was like an accessible ritual that, I, that just paused me at my coffee making routine so that I could actually feel what it's like to be a human again. Mm. There was one thing that you said, I have so many things I want to talk about, but I know our time is limited. Receiving a diagnosis is page 380. For our listener, receiving a diagnosis, page 380 is an entire chapter for you. But one thing that you just said in there that pertains to this as well as pretty much every other thing was that as soon as your mother forgot your name for the first time. Yeah. You had to move so slowly. Yeah. And I remember feeling this. I was, I was much younger and I was leaving a lover actually. And we were parting ways. We knew that we wouldn't see each other again, if ever, or definitely not for a very long time. And I had to move so slowly because I was in so much pain. Yeah. And it's a poem, a really short poem that I wrote that I thought I would share with you. And I'm not, I haven't been inspired to share them on any podcast before, but I'm going to share it now. It's called Kitchen Prayer. Heart hurts, wiping down the counter again and once more, leaving the balled up paper towel to sit there, act of defiance, walking extra slowly so as not to jostle the heart in my chest. Afraid if I move too fast, I might forget the way you loved me when I wasn't prepared to love myself. But the walking extra slowly when you're in pain, it's like so profound. It's such a, it's such a thing. It's such a, it's such a reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know that, that, that word threshold, mm. that's a threshold you're talking about. Totally. You know, and the thing about it, it's like, oftentimes we think it's a doorway. But like doorways are meant to be walked through. Thresholds are meant to be walked slowly through. They're meant to be adorned and made into something meaningful and even paused at 
there's 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 things to do at a threshold it's not just the thing to walk through as you're saying like some part of you needed to walk slow through mm-hmm. that time mm-hmm. you know it was too much to just pass through it like nothing really happened this person changed you i mean that's your poem like that's what i heard from that is that person was incredibly meaningful to you and therefore the ending had to be meaningful yeah right so you have to make meaning with the ending it can't just our culture is so obsessed with beginnings i get it it's fun it's pretty it's joyful but we also have to learn how to make endings more beautiful more meaningful so and you did your poem by the way beautiful and you made that ending into more beauty with that poem. Page 381, we're still in receiving a diagnosis. And I wanted to read this for our listener because I think it, it brings us very solidly into the value here. These moments reveal the fundamental uncertainty that has always underwritten your entire life. You only thought your body was reliable. You only believed you had control. You had only gotten used to having choices. Now this diagnosis throws the curtain back, draws the curtain back, revealing what the Buddhist nun Pema Chodron calls, quote, the groundlessness of our situation. The free fall from realizing that nothing was ever secure or guaranteed in the first place. That control was just an illusion. So how do you stand up when there's nothing to stand on? And you go on to say that ritual can offer Ground in the groundlessness, not necessarily to return to the delusion of safety, but to be able to recognize what is changing and to attempt to make sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that threshold is so intense that it doesn't make any sense. And I'm talking personally and also collectively, by the way. I mean, we're going through a major collective threshold too. Um, like the pandemic, for instance. But sometimes the threshold is so big that it doesn't make any sense. I'm thinking of a woman I interviewed, her and her husband in love, married for years, about to have a, you know, trying to have a baby. Every day he would go on a bike ride. She'd have, she'd make him coffee when he gets back. And one time he went on a bike ride, hit a rock, flipped over, broke his neck, became a paraplegic. No. Yeah. And their life uh, uh, changed completely dramatically. Like their finances changed. Her sense of privacy changed. Her sense of children, you know, she couldn't have a baby. I mean, everything in one second changed. And it was so big that she was having trouble making any sense of her life anymore. You know what I mean? It was just enormous. And this woman had a little ritual chops. She actually like, it was, it was amazing what she told me. She said on the anniversary of his, him becoming a paraplegic, she asked two of her closest friends, will you come with me to do a little ritual? And they said, of course. And she brought him, she brought them to the rock that made him into a paraplegic. And they did, she did a bunch of rituals, one of which was throwing things at the rock and getting to express her anger. She was raging that her life changed so much. And then she, in their presence, she poured water on the rock and she asked for forgiveness. 
and healing. And she got witnessed by her two friends just being in the mess of life. You know, just how it's, it's so unexpected. Things change. Sometimes they change expectedly. And sometimes, like in that case, they changed unexpectedly. And that threshold was too big to cross alone. She needed other people to hold her hand and to say, we have you. We got you. Do not cross this threshold alone. Let's do it together. And, you know, it's not like it. I, I want to be careful as I'm talking, by the way. It's, I'm not talking about solutions. Rituals are not solutions. They're not like, and therefore she solved her, you know, her life. That's not what happened. She just got to mark how her life had changed and to try and make a little sense of something that made no sense. That's what it was more akin to, you know? So we have to be careful when we talk about ritual because it's not, they're not, you know, problem solvers. Right. There are ways to adorn and make meaning with life, to make life more meaningful, to make life more, um, you know, to make life make a little bit more sense and understanding. The word adorn is the key word, I think. And that's the one that I want to leave us with because that- We don't use that word much anymore. We don't use that word. And it's such a good, beautiful, true, and not necessarily beautiful in the sort of traditional sense of beauty. It's just, it just, it, it marks, like, as you said, it puts a highlighter over, it creates meaning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, adorn, like, you know, and it's such a, like to adorn a threshold, you know, it's like kind of what we do like around Christmas time, right? Like we take our our doors and we put wreaths on them and lights and bells and we just we just make those thresholds more beautiful and you know I called this book hello goodbye because it's those moments it's those moments where something comes or something goes when something changes something breaks something's healed you know you determine what's happening in your life to kind of fill in the blank here but those moments need adornment they need more beauty, especially in a world that is ever more in pain. You know, to actually transform the pain into beauty is one of the skills we can have as humans. It's what I'm devoted to in my life is to transform pain into beauty. And it's, and it's something that feeds other people and, and other generations. You know, to actually say, this is for you. This came from my pain. This came from my life and now it's more beautiful and I want to gift it to you. I want to gift it back to life. And there's nothing, you know, to actually find purpose with pain, that's an amazing skill to actually feel like we don't have to just suffer pain. We can transform it into more beauty that feeds the world. Thank you so much. I really can't thank you enough for this book, for all the, learnings that I've experienced in reading it and sharing it. I take pictures of the pages and send them to people. Thank you, darling. I'm just so thankful for you. And thank you again for the honor of writing the foreword as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's have a slumber party soon. Dude, get over here. Let's go. I got a couch with your name on it, bro. I'm serious. Um, this is Day Schildkret. And his book is called Hello, Goodbye. His other book is called Morning Altars. You probably want them both if you have enjoyed his energy during the course of this. And Day, what is the website where our listener can find you? 
You can go to morningalters.com, M-O-R-N-I-N-G-A-L-T-A-R-S.com, um, or my name, dayshulcret.com. And, you know, speaking of adornment, if you want a little bit more beauty in your life, I put out a lot of art on Instagram. So Morning Alters is the tag. And, you know, that's just a joy for me to make. I make a lot of art out of nature and uh, put it out there. I think that's how, you know, so many people have found me is through my art. Mm. I love you. I love you. Mm. We talk again soon. Come to Santa Fe, please. I will. I will. Love you. Take good care. You too. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.